Hello, everybody. So we are going to look at, we're, it's still in the book of Luke. You guys remember that? Yeah. We're going to look at Jesus' baptism and the, his genealogy. If you don't know what the word genealogy means, you have a dictionary on your phone. And you can actually quickly look it up. But I'll explain it. So what we're going to do is read a kind of a few verses. Um, Luke chapter 3, if you guys have your Bibles or Bibles on your phone. And I'm going to start with verse 21. And it said, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, or what people thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, because we looked at the virgin birth last week. You guys remember that? Yeah. Okay. The son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, and then I jumped a few verses because there's a lot of names. To verse 32. The son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Nathan, who was one of David's sons. Most people only think of Solomon. Notice that? The son of Judah. Oh, I jumped to verse 33. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. The son of Abraham, you guys know who he is. Jump a few verses. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who didn't have a dad, so the son of God. <laughs> Well, yeah, not a human dad. <laughs> so let's look at this for a few minutes. First, we're going to look at the baptism. And it said, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You guys have all heard this story, right? So what happens at the baptism? This voice comes from heaven, and God is confirming Jesus' identity as the beloved son. But what, is he, what does this mean is, when he says, you are my son, he is talking about Jesus' identity, not his ancestry. It's not in the son in the sense of, you know, like in some pagan religions where, you know, gods give birth to children. Son is... Not a son of God in the sense that he was born or created. Son of God in the sense that he was one of the three persons of the Trinity. When we say Father, Son, and Spirit, we are talking about terms that describe their relationship. And so the Son of God wasn't born or created. He's existed eternally with God the Father. Without a beginning, as one of the three persons of the Trinity... 
And this statement, though, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, this wasn't the first time God said this. Often God speaks something, and it shows up all throughout different parts of history. The same thing. And when you actually read this, and this isn't just this time, almost everything God says, he's quoting himself because he already said it. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? What is he quoting? Psalm 22, 1. This is already said as a prophecy through David. And so when he says, you are my son, this is a quote from Psalm 2, 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Through David. Jesus was a fulfillment of Psalm 2, which you can look at later. And what is Psalm 2? It's this prophecy about this coming Messiah that's going to start a kingdom that's going to be unlike any of the other kingdoms the world has had. But it's more than that. Because this doesn't just say, you are my son. It says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That is a quote from Genesis 22, 1-2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, sometimes when you interpret from one language to another, you can't tell what's in the original. This phrase, your only son, whom you love, in Genesis 22:2, in the Greek Old Testament, is literally almost word for word to the phrase used in Luke 3.22, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's identical words. So this is a, Jesus was a fulfillment. Isaac was a type, a prophetic picture of Jesus. Jesus was a fulfillment of Genesis 22, where the story of Isaac and him being sacrificed, almost, was a prophetic picture of the coming Messiah and his sacrifice. Now, when you read the baptism in the voice from heaven, you're not Jewish in the first century. They would have heard those words and said, wait a minute, I know where those words come from. Does that make sense? So God's words at Jesus' baptism, it shows that Jesus was a fulfillment of earlier prophecies about the coming Son of God. And, and these words, they show Jesus' heavenly divine origin. But if you only have the baptism without the verses that follow, right, then you have this question, what about his earthly human origin? Does that make sense? So what Luke answers that. So what Luke does is immediately after God's words in Luke 3.22, he records Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3.23-38 on purpose. And you know the genealogy it just shows you who all your ancestors are, right? Your descendants. And so here's what Luke does immediately after he talks about the baptism. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. 
being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Because he had just talked about the virgin birth. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Here's David, here's Abraham. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Have you ever read how many times in the Bible are genealogies? You look in the book of Genesis, you look in the book of Numbers, you look in the book of Chronicles, you look in the book of Ezra, you look in the book of Nehemiah, you look in the book of Matthew, you look in the book of Luke. They keep telling you who their dad was, grandpa was, great-grandpa was, great-great-grandpa was, right? Why is that so important? And usually those are the sections that, like, pastors skip. There's like, there's nothing... They can't find a practical application from a genealogy, so you move on, right? There's three things I want to mention why genealogies are important. Firstly, Jesus was born of a virgin and is fully God, right? The genealogy shows that he's fully human as well. What do I mean by that? He didn't just appear human. He didn't just, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look like a human, but I'm really not. He wasn't just partly human. He wasn't like a hybrid from the Avengers. He was fully human. He had a real physical lineage all the way back to Adam. Secondly, the lineage itself is important. Because it shows Jesus as fulfilling these messianic prophecies, these messianic promises from the forefathers. The genealogy isn't just a list of kids. To certain dads were given promises about their kids or kid, right? As the son of David, Jesus fulfilled God's messianic promise to David. What did God promise David? He said, David, one of your descendants is going to bring my kingdom to earth, which is eternal. Not just another dictator or president that's going to do his kingdom. Look at the promise that God gave David. 2 Samuel 7, 12. I will raise up from your offspring, one of your kids, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's like, well, one of my kids is going to be a fulfillment of that. And if they thought it was Solomon, they realized pretty quickly it wasn't. He starts having a bunch of wives and all kinds of stuff going on with Solomon. Right? What about as son of Abraham? God fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled God's messianic promise to Abraham. He, that one of Abraham's kids is going to bless the nations. But why is that so important? Because the nations had been cursed. The human race had been cursed. Because the first human, Adam and Eve, completely rebelled against God. Right? So in your offspring, which in the Hebrew and in the Greek Old Testament, offspring is seed, is singular. In one of your kids. 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That implies reversing the curse that came of death, the curse of death through Adam and Eve's sin. Now, what about as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, but even as the son of Adam? Jesus would fulfill God's calling to Adam that Adam failed to fulfill. Adam was tempted, well, you remember that? He was tempted by the devil. He sinned, and, he, and God had given Adam this command, as my representative on earth, you're going to rule the planet in, in the, my way. Adam gave up that rulership to a snake, Satan. And if you guys don't believe that Satan is running the planet, let's just go through history. World War I, World War II, Holocaust, terrorism, plagues. I mean, do we have a nice history as the human race? Why is it so bad? Do you understand what I'm saying? But Jesus was also tempted by the devil. In Luke 4, 1 to 12, the devil tempts him. But that temptation, listen to me, immediately follows one verse where it says, Adam, the son of God, in Luke 3.38. The next verse starts Jesus' temptation. Why? What is Luke showing us? That Jesus, just like Adam, was tempted by the devil, but Jesus did not sin. And Jesus didn't give up his dominion. He exercised his dominion. Right? Thirdly, the genealogies show that all of the stories from Adam to Jesus, they are historical, not just a bunch of metaphor or allegory, right? Not just myths, not just fiction. What is the genealogy? Think about this for a moment. Jesus and David and Abraham were real historical figures. Well, who else is in the genealogy? Noah and Adam. What's the implication? They were just as real. You understand what I'm saying? Because this is a physical genealogy. There are very popular books out right now. Literally, one of the most popular books in the entire Christian world about the book of Genesis is called The Lost World of Genesis by a guy named John Walton. There's another book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton, Old Testament professor at Wheaton, and N.T. Wright, who is an Old Testament professor or New Testament professor in England. And what these books say, and scholars are gobbling it up and, and repeating it everywhere, is that we're reading Genesis wrongly. Because we're not ancient Middle Eastern people. If we were ancient Middle Eastern people, we would realize that Genesis was never meant to be historical. Those were never real events. It was, it was sanctified or redeemed myth. It is allegory. It is metaphor to teach lessons about God, not to show an actual historical event. And we've been misreading Genesis for centuries as the church. But what this implies, the reason they do this, 
is the creation event wasn't real, Adam and Eve weren't real, that snake thing wasn't real, the garden wasn't real. It's all fiction, it's story to tell you something about God. But when you look at Luke's genealogy, listen to me, Adam was just as real a person as Jesus, right? And when you look at Luke's genealogy, neither Jesus had a human father and Adam didn't have a human father. Notice that? If you look at it, it says, A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, Jesus, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. He didn't have a human father. And then Adam, he says, Adam, the son of God. Adam didn't have a human father. Many scholars say that the story of creation and Adam and Eve is not historical. They say that the authors never intended it to be historical. But the Genesis story itself and Luke's genealogy itself, it says all these modern day smart guys are wrong. Let me show you something. Now, what I'm about to get into is it has to do with Luke. So just track with me for a moment. You guys with me? There is a Hebrew term in Genesis called toledot. You might say, well, what does that mean? Toledot is a Hebrew word that is translated as family histories or as genealogies. Family history or genealogy. It is the entire book of Genesis is structured around this one word. It's used 11 times in the book of Genesis. These are the generations, Toledot, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Might say, well, but I thought you said family history. Adam didn't come from a human dad. God formed Adam from the earth. So it starts with the earth, the first ge genealogical list. Okay? This is the book of the generations, totally dot, of Adam, Genesis 5.1. These are the generations, totally dot, of Noah, Genesis 6.9. And then it does it eight more times. The 12th Toledot section is not in Genesis, it's in the book of Numbers, which is also in those first five books of the Bible. And it says, these are the generations Toledot of Aaron and Moses. And with that, you have 12 Toledot sections, 12 family histories that make up the first five books of the Bible. You guys heard the word Torah? Or the Latin one, Pentateuch? the first five books. The use of Toledot and the genealogy list in Genesis, what does it show you? It shows you that whoever wrote Genesis, where I believe it was Moses, and Jesus believes it was Moses, and I think me and Jesus are right. <laughs> but Moses had a lot of source material, right? shows that the author was intending to write about generations of real people in real places with real events. Right? And what Luke does is Luke is continuing this tradition back from the first five books of the Bible. And he's tracing the family history of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, I'm going to 
look at, let's look at one more thing on these genealogies. There are not one but two genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. There's one in Luke and there's one in Matthew. Let's read real quickly the one in Luke again. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And Joseph was the son of who? Heli. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's Luke. Now let's go to Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's just a summary statement. And then he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, moves down a ways, and Jesse the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Notice in Luke it said Nathan, now it says Solomon. By the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, by the way, just a quick little, by the wife of Uriah, who is that? Bathsheba, right? Notice it honors her marriage to, you know. But Solomon was the product of an adulterous affair, right? In the genealogies in the Old Testament, you would be shocked at how many mistakes, how many sin, and how many failures are like, and almost every single list. So you cannot count yourself out by, pile, by listing all the mistakes and failures you've made in your life. That's not the way God works. God uses your mistakes and failures. He doesn't count you out because of your mistakes and failures. Everybody got that? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and then he goes, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, Matthew starts his gospel with Jesus' genealogy. Luke inserts the genealogy between his baptism, where he's confirmed as the Son of God, and the temptation, where he is challenged as the Son of God. You guys with me? But the genealogies are really different. Matthew traces from the oldest to the youngest generation. Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus. Luke traces from the youngest to the oldest generation. Luke goes from Jesus to Adam. Matthew's endpoint is Abraham. He stops there. Luke's endpoint is Adam. He stops there. Matthew's structure, three groups of 14 names. He has 42 names total. Luke's structure is 11 groups of seven names each, 77 total. The title Son of God is the 78th. Matthew and Luke have the same names from Abraham to David, but after that, they diverge, they go different. Matthew lists David's son Solomon and all of Solomon's royal descendants, all those kings. Luke lists David's son Nathan and his physical descendants all the way to Jesus. You guys with me so far? It's getting a little technical, but 
this, some stuff we, we just have to know. This is stuff we just have to know. You guys with me? Why do these different exist? How do you have two different lineages arriving at the same person, Joseph? That's a big question. And Joseph is the legal father, not the biological father of Jesus. But the genealogies are still according to the Joseph. We saw that when we read them. Joseph, the son of this person, or Joseph, the son of this person. Now, about the differences, Matthew is highlighting Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of Israel, clearly. Luke focuses on Jesus. So Matthew has him in the line of Abraham and David through Solomon and the Davidic kings. That's Matthew. Luke is highlighting Jesus as king and savior of the world. And he focuses on Jesus in the line all the way back to Adam. Not just back to the messianic prophecies of Abraham. You guys with me so far? Now, we got two lineages. Why does Matthew trace the lineage through David's son Solomon and the royal line from Solomon? And Luke, the lineage through David's son Nathan and the physical line from Nathan. Why? Scholars have written big, thick books about why. Most believe it's because of this. Jeremiah, remember guys know Jeremiah? He was a prophet Old Testament, right before Israel gets captured by Babylon and exiled. Jeremiah prophesied to King Jeconiah, who was the last king to reign in Solomon's line. After him, there's no more. No more kings. And listen to the prophecy. Listen to this. Now, all the Jews knew that God told David, hey, your, one of your sons is going to have an eternal kingdom that will never end. Right? And they're watching the kings through Solomon's line. All of a sudden, Jeremiah shows up and prophesies to this son of Solomon, great, 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 you know, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. You almost wonder when Jeremiah prophesied that if Satan was, woo, I won. God cornered himself. God promises through David's line and now, through Jeremiah, he prophesies and said, it's not going to happen through this line of kings from Solomon. Because of this, Jeconiah was cursed. He would have no descendants that would be kings. And with Jeremiah's prophecy, like I mentioned, it's like God cornered himself. The messianic prophecies given to David, it looked like it was being fulfilled through Solomon's line. Now that line was cursed. There's not going to be a messianic king from that line. So what is God going to do? How is God going to fulfill his prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 7 and fulfill his prophecy through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 22? How is God going to fulfill both? It doesn't look possible. 
So what happens is the royal line through David's son Solomon and the physical line through David's son Nathan, both lines converge at Jesus. Now, according to Matthew, Solomon's line led to Jacob. I'm getting a little technical here, but try to follow me here. Who was the father of Joseph? Matthew 1.16. So who's the father of Joseph? Jacob. But according to Luke, Nathan's line led to Heli, who was the father of Joseph. So who's the father of Joseph? Heli. Well, how is that possible? Whatever people are trying to prove now, you cannot have two dads produce a child. It's just not possible. The plumbing doesn't work. According to, so how can both be true? You can look in the genome for that answer because there's something that is mentioned all throughout the genealogies. It happens again and again and again and again and again. If, according to Old Testament law or teaching, if a father only has a daughter and no sons, then the daughter's husband can be adopted by the father as his legal but not biological son. Did you understand what I just said? So if a guy has a girl, a daughter, and she's got no brothers, how is that inheritance passed down? She marries a guy, and her father says, I don't have a son, but my wife's husband, I am now adopting him. So he's not his biological son, he is his legal son. You guys with me? In this way, a father can transfer his rights and possessions to his daughter's husband, who is now his adopted son. This is mentioned in genealogies a bunch of places. Let me give you one example. In 1 Chronicles 2, 34 to 36. Now, Sheshan had no sons, only daughters. But Sheshan had an Egyptian slave whose name was Jarha. So Sheshan gave his daughter in marriage to Jarha, his slave, and she bore him, Jarha, Atiah. And Atiah fathered Nathan, and Nathan fathered Zabad. You see what the, the, the chronicler is saying? He's giving, he's explaining the law I just told you. So here's what scholars believe is likely, is probably the reason. Mary had no brothers. Her sister is mentioned, but not any brothers. One example, John 19.25 but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Never a mention of a brother. So Mary's father, who would have been Heli, would have adopted Joseph as his son. Even though Joseph would, and Joseph would be the legal, but not biological heir. And that's the line through David's son, Nathan through Heli to Joseph. But Matthew records the line, David to Solomon to Jacob, who's Joseph's biological father. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? Did I lose any? If I lost you, I'm sorry. 
Yes. So it, so technically Mary's dad would have been through David and Nathan this way. And Joseph from Jacob would have been through David through Solomon. Both lines end up because of Mary and Joseph at Jesus. And that resolves the issue of you got a prophecy that David says your kid will rule everything forever. And a prophecy through Jeremiah that to Solomon says, your kid's not going to do anything. You're not going to have a kid. Does that make sense? Joseph had to get married. Like, Joseph and Mary had yeah. to actually technically marry for it to be. But you would, but yeah. the odds, the, that's why these genealogies, we read them, oh, is that cute? The odds of the convergence, I don't even know what the odds are. Okay. Can I explain one last thing? Because this is important. I'll literally be five more minutes. This is important, though. There are, just like the differences between Matthew and Luke's genealogies, there are a lot of differences between the Gospels. And the Gospels are just these biographies, these, these eyewitness reports, collections from different eyewitness sources that have been written down of Jesus. Now, scholars look at these differences and they make a conclusion. Difference means contradiction. And then they say, if you have contradictions, that's proof that things in the Gospels are not historically accurate. Right? There's a book called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels by name Michael Lacona. Almost all pastors read it. And you know what, his, you know what he says? The Gospels are full of contradictions. There's no way to resolve it. So we need to stop treating the Gospels like history and start reading them like theology. But if it didn't really happen, do you think the lessons actually mattered? Do you understand what I'm saying? And many scholars claim that the authors of the Gospels intentionally make up stories and sayings of Jesus, fictionalized accounts to make these theological points. But, here's my point. Just because there are differences doesn't mean there are contradictions. It doesn't mean that. Differences don't mean that the accounts were made up. In fact, if you have multiple eyewitness reports and you're getting multiple sources, are you going to have a lot of differences from a lot of different perspectives? Yes. So, in Luke, I'm going to give you one, one example of this. Because it's the very next section after the genealogy. The very next section. And the problem is, is, is you know, you got some young high schooler and he's, you know, he comes to church and he said, okay, read your Bible, read your Bible. So he says, I'm going to read my Bible. So he reads the temptation account in Luke, and then he reads the temptation account in Matthew. And he goes, now wait a minute. They're different. They're not the same. They're in different order. And how that can't be true. One of these has to be wrong. 
So he goes to his youth pastor and says, wait a minute, these two temptation accounts are in different order. And do you understand what I'm saying? In Luke's account, the devil tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread, Luke 4, 3 to 4. And then he tempts him to fall down and worship Satan to receive authority over the kingdoms of this world, verses 5 to 8. And then he tempts him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to test God to protect him, verse 9 to 12. Right? So we've got turning stones into bread, falling down and worshiping Satan, throwing yourself off a temple. Right? That's in Luke. Then you go to Matthew. The first temptation is turning, turning stones into bread. Yep, that's just like Luke. The second one is throw yourself off the temple. Wait a minute. That's the third one in Luke, not the second one. And the third one in Matthew is to worship Satan to receive his kingdoms. Wait a minute. That's the second one in Luke, not the third one. The order of the temptations is different. And it looks, are Matthew and Luke contradicting each other? Is one of them just wrong? You hear what I'm saying? I'm sorry about what I'm about to do. I'm using a couple of large words, but these are the words that people use in their thick books, but they are helpful. There is a difference when you tell an event between being achronological and dischronological. I apologize. Achronological means you're not stating a chronology. You're not implying a chronology. Dischronological means you are stating one, you are implying one, but you have changed it to what really happened. For some reason, you changed it, but you did that intentionally. Does that make sense? Achronological is, is not chronological, but it is not inaccurate. Do you hear what I just said? You're not stating a chronology. You're not implying one. You're just not using one. Do you know that when, we, when, we, when you go home and tell your wife something, you would be shocked at how much of you telling her about your day is achronological. It's not dyschronological. You're, you're not intentionally lying about the order. You're just not using an order. You do this all the time. Reporters in court cases do this all the time. Let me give you an example. The wife can ask a husband how his day went, and here's, what he, here's how he answers. Oh, it was okay. I got a lot of work done. I had a great conversation with my boss about a new project, but I really didn't like the new menu at the cafeteria. He's not saying, after I got all my work done, I talked with my boss, after I talked with my boss. That's not what he's saying. What he is recalling, it's not chronological, but it's also not inaccurate. Luke does this all the time. Luke reports events achronologically, but he doesn't report them dyschronologically. He's not intentionally changing an order, such as Jesus' temptations. You might say, well, Sam, how do you know that? I apologize for the last thing I'm about to do. 
sometimes you actually have to get down and look at Greek conjunctions. There is a Greek conjunction, chi, which when we, we translate it as and. Okay? But this Greek conjunction that means and doesn't necessarily mean then. It doesn't necessarily mean thereafter. It can just mean and. What do I mean by that? You can say, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. Doesn't necessarily mean this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And when Luke connects the temptations, there's only one conjunction he's using, the conjunction chi. Now, I, the problem is, is in your English translation, you don't know that. But it's true. Matthew doesn't just use the Greek conjunction chi. Matthew uses more conjunctions. There's a Greek conjunction tate. Guess what it means? Then or thereafter. It literally means then or thereafter. He uses a Greek word pollen, which means again. So you say something and then again Satan came and said something to him. Matthew, based on his conjunctions, is clearly intending the temptations to be chronological. What was the order? Look at Matthew, because he, he is telling you there's the order. What were the three temptations? Look at Luke. He'll just tell you what they were. He's not in the language, not telling you then, then, then. Does that make sense? Okay. So we looked at the baptism a little bit. We looked at the genealogy a little bit and the temptations a little bit. Any questions before we finish? Any questions? Any thoughts? The order of the factors does not alter the thought. No. It's a mathematical principle. Yeah. <laughs> now, why is it, um, ladies included in the genealogy? Who? Why aren't ladies included in the genealogy? Being a daughter, why is it Sarah mentioned? Or? Matthew includes four women in, the, in his genealogy. Luke doesn't. It's the, the genealogy is, is usually a record of father to son, father to son. And it's not because even in, now, in modern day Middle Eastern culture, which is mostly Islamic, women are really, they, women are devalued, not just different. Even in Judaism, in many ways, women are devalued, not just different. But biblically, you find that their, their roles are different, but not necessarily devalued. Eve wasn't less valuable than Adam, but there was different roles and different order. And, and a lot of times the reason Adam was first, and so it's just an issue of order of going men to son, men to son. But do you think anybody realized that that man, that man was not the pregnant one having that kid? Everybody knew it was the woman that had all the hard work in that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But there is, the Bible is, in, if, and this will, at some point we're going to have to get into this because gender is, it's like for a lot of people in the world right now, gender is the single most important thing. 
Really? It's either the color of their skin, the gender of their body parts. It's like preeminent above everything. The Bible, the image of God is man and woman. There are differences between men and women, but one is not devalued in scripturally. Even in the Old Testament, I, I can show you. Israel had no problem women telling them what to do. Esther, you know what I'm saying? Deborah, you know, on and on. Israel had no problem. And God is like, I'm going to make a woman a prophetess or a man a prophetess. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, but there is differences. And, and, there's, and because of differences is why there are men in the genealogies. So, any other thoughts or questions before we finish? Any other thoughts or questions? Just something that jumped out at you and what we looked at. Anything else? Uh, I don't know if this is a, probably not a part of the answer, but maybe this is a, for later. Mm -hmm. why, why is it that so many scholars are not accounting the Gospels and the Old Testament even as fact in history? I'll tell you why. Right. Or why it's, it, it, and, and in John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis, which is almost a textbook now in most evangelical, is he, he tells you at, at multiple points. He says, the smartest people I ever met are scientists. And all of the scientists believe that the eyeball, the brain, DNA coding, skeletons, butterflies, octopus, are the result of cosmic dust in a blender over millions and millions of years. They believe that an eyeball with its million interconnected functional parts, do you know your eyeball has a million parts? Million inter was the result of some kind of random chance over millions of years. And John Walton says, they are right. So the Bible cannot be right. Okay, God didn't create it, and Adam wasn't a special creation. So he says, because the scientists are right, we must be interpreting the Bible wrongly. But that's a big conclusion. It's true, both can't be correct. Well, but, but, but even the idea of what mechanism the universe just out of a, out of a cosmic dust in a blender produces an eyeball. There's no mechanism. There is no mechanism to design an eyeball. Sam, you know what? Do you but that's, that, he, that's literally why. And so they changed their entire approach, the church historical approach to a book of the Bible like Genesis, completely change it 100% just because of that one issue. Anyways, go ahead. It's shocking how many of those there are. But when you look in the media, what does the media say? Science says X, right? Have you ever heard like a politician? I stand with science. Well, what is science? There's no, a scientist might say something. There's not this, this, this organism that kind of encompasses the planet 
That's a, it's a scientist. Well, the fact of the matter is, is literally some of the top astrophysicists on the planet say there must be a mind behind the universe. There's no possible way there's not for what they, because of their own discoveries. But that's not what the, the media always says, science says this. No, what they might mean is these five scientists that work for the government or at these three universities say this. You know what I'm saying? Oh no, he, 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 is, he is a top scholar of Babylonian, Egyptian, and other literature. And he says, well, to understand the Middle East mindset, you need to look at Babylonian myths, Egyptian myths, and then we can understand Israeli myths. But Israeli myths are, are, are purging it so that you get rid of all the other gods and just have God, but it's still myth. The problem is, is I lived in Tibet, and I saw the guys that write those myths, they're all demonized. They were creepy, the Babylonians and the Egyptians, right? And, and to compare that with what the, the Jews did in the Old Testament is what you really should write a book is how different they are, not how similar they are to ancient myths. Any other thoughts or questions before we finish? Yeah, it's a big difference. difference. It's where they change. Yeah, so that gives me, I just want to dig in more. Last thing, though. You know that, no, you know that besides, the, the, the genealogy of Nathan was tracked, but none of those guys were that important in history. Listen to me carefully. God, we have this idea that you've got to be this superstar, this massive history maker, this massively influential person to really do you think that Nathan's you know great great grandson when he's had his wife have a baby they had any idea that they were they were creating a line that was going to lead to Jesus that's just the way God works with all of us all of us he works in these hidden obscure ways that's his his main way of working is through hidden, obscure people who don't look like they amount to much. That's his main way. Every once in a while, he's going to use a superstar or some massively influential person. But that is not his main way of doing stuff. But just something to think, because the genealogies shout that, right? So anyways. <laughs>